we built a link diagram of over 2,000 names. And at the very top of it, after five months being with this team, we realized one bodyguard, inner circle of Saddam Hussein's running the whole thing. This is a story about people, and more importantly, this is a story about a man who truly listened to the person he was talking to and developed what's known as the empathy-based approach and through his actions directly led to the capture of former Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein. Joining the studio with us today is Eric Maddox. Welcome. Thank you, David. This is going to be a great conversation, but I think it's important we lay the foundation of a little bit of what life was like for you and the military in general pre-9-11, because it was obviously a different world back then. Sure. So, David, before 9-11, I enlisted in the Army in 1994. I was an infantry guy, spent three years as a paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne Division. All the way. Learned about the Army's foreign language program, thought it was cool, re-enlisted to learn Chinese Mandarin, and I was trained as an interrogator. So as it's as the turn of the century, the United States military, you know, they, they love their linguists, and you, there were no interrogations going on. We weren't at war. So my primary mission was as an intelligence collection officer for the United States military against the Chinese. 9-11 happens. We start going to war in, initially in, in Afghanistan. Again, Chinese Mandarin. They didn't need me yet. We go to war in Iraq. I was told I'm never going to the Middle East. My focus was Chinese Mandarin. And three months of the war in Iraq, I received highly unexpected orders for Baghdad. Wow. So you went to language school, the, the, the military's language school, which is the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, correct? Right. And then after that, you went to interrogation training? That's correct. And this was all pre-9-11 and focused, and you, you studied Chinese, so different mission, different part of the world, and 9-11 happened, and they needed your skill set. They did. Again, 2003, the United States would go to war in Iraq. Right. I didn't think they did. I get unexpected orders for Baghdad. They don't tell me what unit. I show up. And I am picked up by interrogators from what was the Joint Special Operations Command. That's the United States Military Task Force responsible for tracking down, you know, everybody on the deck of cards, mainly Saddam. Right. Wow. So you show up in Baghdad, you get attached to a unit, you have the interrogation training, you don't have the, you know, necessarily speak Arabic, and then you just jump right into interrogations. I mean, how, how do you get... What's the welcome like out there? So it's a great question, right? Like the welcome was, why am I here? I'm a Chinese Mandarin linguist. And they said, listen, we have Delta Force teams spread throughout the country. They want interrogators with them to go with them on the raids. They And these this group of bearded soldiers, they're like, we're the interrogators. We're not infantry. And they said, we called the army. We said, let's give, it, give us a list of every single U.S. Army interrogator who's former infantry, and they also said, and we want you to be a graduate a ranger school. Hmm. They said, Eric, you were the only person on the list. Yeah, there's not that many. <laughs> hey, you're the only person on the list. So I'm immediately sent 
to to create Iraq. There was a small Delta Force team up there. I joined them. The commander said very clearly, you're going out with us on these raids. And oh, by the way, we've never fought a war like this before. There's not a battlefield. There's not uniforms. And you've got to make these prisoners talk. You know, that is a huge point. And I was going to touch on it later, but we're going to touch on it now. This was, and I was there. I was there. I was, you know, third plane into Iraq, early days, just like you. And it was not, it's, it's not a war of two armies on the battlefield, forward march, and let's go fight. These are, I'm a plumber by day, and I'm shooting an RPG at you at night, and then I'm going to go take my kids to school. I mean, I mean, that might be a little bit exaggerating, but these are plain clothes, and sometimes you don't know who the combatant is. This is true unconventional warfare. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. And the problem was that all military interrogators were trained to be interrogating a soldier from the... So there was not this plausible deniability of their guilt Mm. or innocence. So the United States military, we had these detention facilities with hundreds of prisoners. We didn't know who they were. And as you know, when we go on these raids and we go on these missions, we were kind of rounding up everybody in the vicinity and there were truly dozens and dozens of innocent people. Well, if you're guilty, you know, hey, just pretend to be one of them. Don't talk. Don't say anything. And there's plausible deniability. So when I started right. my interrogations, I realized we were never trained on this. I'm going to have to gain cooperation from somebody who really has a really good chance of getting themselves out of prison if they keep their mouth shut. Mm. And- just thought of this right now. This seems to be a whole kind of a lot of things in the military has changed since 9-11, the unconventional warfare tactics, convoy tactics, everything. So you were trained in an old, I don't want to say old school, but different manner of interrogation where, like you just said, I captured you on the battlefield. You're in a uniform. I know you're a combatant. Right. As of now, I'm going into a room to talk to you and I don't even know who you are, maybe. Right. So let's start with that. How do you even start then? You have a blank slate. You're in Iraq, early days, not years and years and years of intelli- you know, uh, intelligence gathering, information gathering. How and where do you even start? Well, the first thing you start with is your ri- original training. You're always told, trust the training you receive. As I use the Army techniques, I realize, okay, I've done these correctly. They're not going to work. And then I and start- so How soon did you realize that? That's a key point, though. You, you, The way I was trained is not going to work. Was that kind of in your first- talk discussion with somebody or when did that hit you (laughs) it crossed my mind wow after my first two prisoners wow after i'm gonna say eight prisoners so i'm three days into this and i'm testing everything i knew to do and it wasn't like i was getting close this was not going to work wow and for me it was i don't know a solution but let's quit getting stuck on the idea that maybe I just need to tweak the techniques. I had to think of something completely different, completely out of the box. Wow. Without going into detail, what was some of the techniques you tried that you knew immediately wasn't going to work? The the basic interrogation techniques. The idea is that you're going to sit in front of this prisoner and with conviction and authority, you're going to make them think you know everything about them. And that under no circumstances are they going to talk their way out of this. And your idea, David, is you want to take away all hope. But what I realized is that plausible deniability was hope. And then I started to realize, wait a second, that hope is actually the only way I can get them to talk. So let's touch on that then. So let's, 
So did you, you had to create a new strategy in your head? I mean, what was going through your mind? Like, this isn't working. What do I do? How did you lead? And we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of this, this empathy-based approach, which I really want to get into. But what, what was the first kind of steps when you started to realize this is not going to work? And what did you do? So David, my, the first was, I just have to figure out how do I keep them talking, right? And so I don't want to pretend that I came up with this grand idea. I did not know what to do. But I said, I've got to figure out who they are. And so I would ask, and it's just like you see on TV, right? The stupid questions about their family and life, like trying to build rapport, just like you would see in the movies. And the prisoners would answer my questions, but I still wasn't gaining any trust. I wasn't getting cooperation. But what I started to realize is that when I was talking to these prisoners, there were times they wanted to be more transparent. Hmm. And then I started to realize, ah, it is me. It's my behavior. It is my mindset. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my goodness, when I'm talking to a prisoner, if I can listen to them minus my biases, minus my goals, my objectives, my agenda of trying to get them to confess and gather actual intelligence and just seek to understand them, that's when I started to get transparency. And that's where I got my first foothold into this technique. So you said people want to open up. Was that because how you approached it, you're a warm person, that's just how human nature is. What does that mean? Well, at the time I didn't realize it, but it comes down to the fact that in all relationships, we use verbal communication to, uh, to determine the level that we can trust an individual. Hmm. Regardless of the topic of conversation, that interaction between two individuals more than it is the transfer of information to either make better decisions or to influence, it's our barometer to determine how much can we trust this person. Interesting. So they, would you say some of the prisoners felt they could trust you? So it took a while and you can't call this a level of trust of what you're perceiving, but the level of trust that it would build was this individual is at least seeking to understand my side of the story. That does not mean that I like them. That doesn't mean we're going to be friends or I'm going to try to break them out of prison. But to seek to understand somebody's perspective absent of your bias is the level of trust people are trying to really want to acquire in a relationship. So that's probably point one then. Do you feel the detainees or the prisoners felt that you were truly trying to understand them as people, which maybe led to more trust? So I wouldn't describe it as understand them as a person, understand the circumstances to which they're in this situation uh. at this moment in time. I mean, if you think about it, a prisoner doesn't need me to understand their life. They need me to understand what's going on right now. I mean, they're people, right? They're right. in prison. Right. They've got a problem. <laughs> they don't need to understand what's going on with their aunt. No, like, I need you to understand me right now. So then keep walking me through this then. Let, let's go down this path of... Uh, the story of, of catching Saddam. He's just, how did it even go down? You started catching a, on these raids and you know I've been on them, you've been on them. You get one or two people off the objective. You don't know who they are. And then another raid and another raid, more people, more people. You just start gathering more intelligence. How, paint so, that picture. David, when I soon, when I got to Iraq, I'm sent to Tikrit, Saddam's hometown. Delta Force team initially said, try to get these prisoners to cooperate so we can get an idea of the insurgency in the Sunni Triangle. I started to talk to prisoners. When I started to get their trust, I started to learn information. When I really understood how to gain cooperation, 
they started to give me targets. Hmm. I went to my Delta Force commander and I said, sir, you wanted a picture? We can get targets. He said, Eric, that's not what Delta Force does. We're not taking an enemy and putting the most expensive elite soldiers on the planet out there based on the enemy. Hmm. I said, I need you to understand there's a higher level of trust. I didn't know it can exist. These prisoners want to help. And he said, I'll do two, give me two targets. They went, they raided these two locations. We found the individuals we're looking for and the commander. He said, when you get that level of trust, he said, Eric, I don't want these prisoners going to the prison. He goes, they're going to live in this house with us. David, we took these guys off the grid, right? They, this, you know, as you know, the compounds, you live in like Saddam's, a, a palace house. Well, they built a room. And as these prisoners started to work with us, they were living with us. We went through 300 prisoners. We built a link diagram of over 2,000 names. And at the very top of it, after five months being with this team, we realized one bodyguard, inner circle of Saddam Hussein's running the whole thing. Wow. As my tour's running out, the whole focus was on the bodyguard. We went from his friends to his relatives to his business partners. Five days into my tour, we captured the driver of the one man I thought could take us to Saddam. And the driver says, Eric, I deliver millions of dollars throughout the country every single week. And I deliver every order for every attack in the Sunni Triangle since this war began. He said, wow. I take orders from that bodyguard. He's taking the orders from Saddam. Whew. So you put, like you just said, put this whole diagram together it led to the bodyguard of saddam and you knew you had to catch him yes and then that led to catching the driver of the bodyguard well we couldn't find the driver i mean we couldn't find the bodyguard yet right so we had to find somebody who could take us to the bodyguard and so this eventually led us to the driver and these bodyguards i mean they're not idiots per se uh, some, uh, are. Some, some are, are but, some but are some are, some are smart. I mean, they're not sleeping in the same place every night and they're, no. they're, they're moving around. Yes. So they're, they're hard to track down and we're going to spend a good 10, 15 minutes on that. But go back to a second. You said something that and I'm not going to remember exactly, but you got these prisoners, you earn their trust. You know, humans are human. So are, the, are these people that at one time had a deep love for Saddam Hussein and were loyal and then the Americans came in and they just flipped or how, what's that all about? Uh, I wouldn't describe they had a, a job. They were a distant relative of Saddam Hussein when they were working for Saddam. Obviously, their loyalty to him had a default <laughs> had to be extremely high. But when you go to war and, and a country invades, a, a military invades your country, I mean, all bets are off. You've got to take care of your family. You've got to look after yourself. And there wasn't, you know, these bodyguards weren't this just loyal, evil unit. They're just normal people. And as I always tell people, David, there's no Luke Skywalker. There's no Darth Vader. People are people. They're just people. And it was a job. They were a bodyguard. They probably got a paycheck and were safe. I mean, pre pre the war. I mean, I would I would describe it more of a, more than a job because their job was loyalty. Interesting. But when the war begins, their job's not loyalty. Well, that's my point. They were loyal, and because of the war, their whole life just got flipped upside down. And then that's it's right. like I have to maybe there I have no choice. I have no plan B now. This is different than the '92 Gulf War. This is a you know, our country is now invaded by the Americans. And I think everybody kind of takes, you know, Interesting. a weight on what what should I do? They're not sure. 
Interesting. Obviously, they felt loyalty to Saddam. I get it. And they needed to see, is this guy, this interrogator, is he going to deliver on what he says he can do? So we're going to get back to the bodyguard and the driver, but I just have so many questions that come to mind. So how did, through these hundreds upon hundreds of interrogations that led to, okay, we got to get this bodyguard. How do you know sometimes what you can and can't trust? Because I'm sure you weren't fed the truth all the time. Oh, no, I definitely would <laughs> Right. Like, so how do you know? I mean, I've been in that situation and I have zero almost interrogation training, but how do you know what you can and can't trust? So the key to interrogations, again, I had to learn this. I had to get my Delta Force commander. His name was Bam Bam. I had to get Bam Bam to understand it. So a prisoner's information, it's like ground beef left out. It's huh. only that good for that long. Right. Because if you're a prisoner and you're captured by the Americans, everyone who knows you knows when you're captured and they know what you could do to identify mm. their location. Interesting. Now, once you understand that, you realize I get a prisoner. I have to act quickly. If the information's right and correct, you can verify it. Mm. So when you say, how did you know if they were, they were giving you was right or wrong? Basically, I had to say, you know, it's not the end all be all if it's not. Because... I mean, we're, this is a Delta Force unit. They're meant to fight wars. They're meant to go on raids. What if the information's wrong? They'll fight their way out of it. They can mm. defend themselves. We have to accept the fact we we accept a certain level of risk. Understood. Going on a raid, that's what they do. Mm. You know, it's really difficult to verify information if they're like, well, what if, what if? You know, what if? That's what we're built to do. God. You're trained to fight wow. a war. Wow. We have to determine which prisoners we can trust, which ones we can't. So what Bam Bam was able to do was act quickly on this ground beef of information, right? And if you think about how quickly we turned around, David, there was a system in place when you got when you captured a prisoner. They were supposed to go in the system, get in an orange jumpsuit, go to Abu Ghraib. Bam Bam had them living at our house. Yeah, that's too much time to get in-processed, per se. Go to there. It's Intel's dead by that point. You know, I've done 2,700 interrogations in my life. Over oh. a 1,000 of those interrogations have been on the target at right. the raid site, right? Like, I didn't really feel a need that, uh, okay, I used to be in the infantry. You're Delta Force. You don't need me out there. But what they did need was an interrogator out there because that's when the ground beef gets shredded. You know, that's when the cow gets butchered on that raid. So wow. we've got, if we can get the intel on the raid site, now it's fresh. And that's how you can verify the validity of the information so quickly. Wow. We're going to get back to that, but let's jump back to now the bodyguard and the driver. So you knew you had to get to the bodyguard, but you didn't have any actionable intelligence on him. So the strategy was go after the driver that, that will then lead you to the bodyguard. <laughs> My strategy was that bodyguard has a lot of power. Sure. He either is the person we need to capture or he's getting that power from his connection with Saddam. Hmm. And power, because like you said, he's delivering money, he's ordering attacks. David, you're talking millions and millions of dollars. Just we cash. did a raid trying to capture the the bodyguard, and we found 1.9 million U.S. dollars on a single raid. Wow. Right? This, I mean, we're talking dozens of millions of dollars. Wow. So I didn't know how to find the bodyguard, but I thought, a driver, good place to start. Oh. How did he know the bodyguard had a driver? From 
From the other intelligence? Another prisoner, right? Got it. So when you have 300 prisoners, you start to identify, okay, that bodyguard's the key. Well, we captured four of his eight brothers. We captured numerous of his, his nephews, right? All three of his business partners. Like we were just going around anything we could do in this flooded link diagram to find who can take us to this bodyguard. Every time you talk, I just get another question. <laughs> Shoot. It just throws me off. But so you captured all these high level people, like you just said, the brothers, the business partners. Was there a difference in the high level people that you talked to and maybe the, the ease or difficulty at, at a rate they gave intel versus maybe I'm the low guy on the totem pole? Absolutely. Right. So people would always think, wow, it must have been harder at the top. It's much easier the higher you go. Right. Interrogations. Basically, I need to influence an individual to trust me to know that when they make a decision, that's a hard decision to make the decision I need them to make. It's about decision making. So why is it easier than for the higher ups? Think about leaders. What do leaders do? They make decisions. Mm. Bad leaders can't make decisions. Subordinates can't make decisions. You can say what you want about it. senior leaders. They're not afraid to make hard decisions. Wow. So if you get me a prisoner, I'm going to give them two choices. My job is to give them two decisions. One's to help me. One's not to help me. I need to make it brutally obvious and clear that helping me is much better for them than not helping me. So they have to feel if they help you, they're somehow going to be protected. They're so, not going to get flow, thrown out on the streets of uh, Fallujah to Creed and get beheaded in the streets. I mean, what is helping you mean? Okay, so great question, right? It's the, if people want to say, Eric, why have you done more interrogations, had a higher level of success than any other interrogator in the history of the United States military? It comes down to one. Th I do one thing, right? You want to know the secret stuff. You're going to learn more about interrogations right now huh. than you ever thought you knew. I do this one thing. When somebody cooperates... In a typical setting, in a typical, if you get pulled over by the cops and you're a drug dealer, right? If you get captured where you were in Iraq, if you confess, do you stay in prison longer or shorter? Longer, longer. right? You cooperate, you get punished. If you keep your mouth shut, as we know, these prisons are crowded. They're over flooded. We have to release people if we think you're innocent. We're going to release you. That means if you're guilty and you keep your mouth shut, you get to get released. Is that good for you or is that bad for you? You mm -hmm. don't help me. That's reward for you. All I do in interrogations is I flip the script and say, if you cooperate with me, I help you. I'm going to get you out of here. If you don't cooperate with me, you're never going anywhere. Wait a second, Eric. What if they're guilty? They all know something. If you do not cooperate with me, you're guilty of one thing, not helping me. I don't care what you do out there. I can't control what you did. I can't control what I can prove. All I can prove is what you're going to do for me here. You know something that helps me. As long as you give me everything I need, wow. I'm getting you out of here. Now, the trick, David, is you like, okay, if somebody cooperates, you release them. People may know that they did that and they're going to kill them. Absolutely. My chore was to make sure that I could protect the identity of all the prisoners that helped me. The beautiful thing is there were prisoners who didn't help me. So understanding psychological communication that through these prisons, people talk mm. for the prisoners who didn't help me. I fed information around the community, around the prisons that they were the ones helping. 
for the prisoners who did cooperate with me. We never went directly. The first raid we got off of a cooperative prisoner was never anyone that was directly connected to them. I would always have them take us to a location. They'd say, Eric, I know some other guys. Nobody else knows I know where they are. They know the primary people I take you to, and I could hide their uh, I, identities yeah, sure, there. Sure. It's the only thing you do. Wow. They cooperate, help them. So they it's don't obviously cooperate, punish. in their best interest to help you. That's it. All right, so back to the... <laughs> The driver. What intelligence led to capturing the driver? How to walk me down that approach? Well, the driver was brought to <clears throat> the nephew of one of the business partners of the bodyguard led us to the driver. Nephew of one of the business partners of, of the, the bodyguard, bodyguard led, led us you... to the driver. Once right. we get the driver, he says, I deliver the money. I deliver the orders. The driver says, I am taking all orders from my boss, this bodyguard, and he's taking all orders from Saddam Hussein. Wow. Saddam's in this area. Where did you pick up the driver at? Is that a... Actually, cat. So, if you can say, I mean, I don't want to. I, I can tell you whatever you want. It's complicated. The driver's second cousin <laughs> was the head of security for the perimeter of the governor of Baghdad. Interesting. Interesting. So he actually had the head of security think that he was bringing in his second cousin just to be interviewed. But we knew he was the driver. So when he brought him in, we just picked him up. So it wasn't wow. even like a raid. Oh. It was a I get it. manufactured meeting in which he didn't get to go home. Did he know that going in? No, I think he was concerned. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely he was a... like, do they know what I do? So you got the driver through the nephew and the business partner of X, Y, and Z, and then the hope the driver is going to lead you to the bodyguard because you know for a somewhat fact, you're going to make them the strong assumption that the bodyguard of Saddam Hussein is going to lead you to Saddam. I never thought we were actually going to capture Saddam. I'll just put that right out there. You were right. out there. If anybody ever thinks they're going to get their high value target, that is wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. I just knew it didn't matter whether I thought we were going to get him. My job was to try to find him. Trying to find him. So we were going to keep that speck of hope and behave as though we were going to get him. All but right. I never thought we were going to get him. We're going to continue on the path with the driver, led to the bodyguard, led to Saddam. But I'm going to throw us off on one more thing, something that came to mind, and I apologize. The culture of the Middle East where maybe it's very... You live in a village. Everybody's somewhat related. Does that have anything to do with anything? Like in Phoenix, I may not even know my neighbor th two doors down. I'll never even talk to him. Is there a culture there where everybody kind of knows everybody? Did that have anything to do come into play where it's kind of like that close inner circle? Is there anything to that? They all know each other. This is Saddam Hussein's hometown. There are only about 20,000 citizens in Tikrit. Okay, that paints the picture a little bit better. There's a difference in they know each other and they know everybody right they all know each other it is not beneficial when i'm trying to gain this one-on-one -on -one trust with a prisoner and literally anybody they might take me to they have some connection to in some way so it's it's definitely a struggle but again i'm telling you verbal communication seeking to understand this empathy-based listening understanding that they're trying to survive for their family their children in a war culture, 
you can shatter those old ties. It just comes down to this connection, this moments when we're together and we communicate that I flip them, right? That they go, I want to trust this guy. I don't know where we're headed, but I'm going to trust this guy. Okay, Eric, here you go. So tell me how it happened. You have the driver. The first time you met him, in your mind, this driver can leave you to the bodyguard. That's a big, you know, source, info info you need, intelligence you need. Mm -hmm. You sit down with the driver. You've never met him before. How do you even start it out? Told him very clearly. I know you're the driver. You got to take me. Obviously, he's like, ah, Eric, ever since you guys invaded, I've been out of a job. So it took me a while, right? Six hours. Six hours. Wow. And he looks and he goes, yep, I'm the driver. He said, Eric, here's the deal. I drop the bodyguard off at one of five safe houses into Creed every single night. He'll be wow. at one of these five safe houses tonight. Got all five locations. Told Bam Bam. Bam Bam says, well, you know, we're hitting them all simultaneously. <laughs> Hit all five. Wow. No bodyguard. Oof. At this point, Bam Bam and the team brought me back from all five houses, all prisoners to our house. I could do the interrogations quick. Now it doesn't take me hours. David, now it takes just minutes and minutes. So those, I got them going. Those six hours, what do you do? Small talk? Oh, I mean, what do you do? Oh, and then, no, and then, no, no, no. It's yeah, not let's small see a, talk. I mean, let's think approach. about, first of all, a prisoner, their their number one job is plausible deniability. So I've got the, the, the driver first trying to be plausible deniability. Once I kind of checkmate him on that, then he says, oh, okay, I was scared. I lied to you. Now I've got to catch him in some lies. Then I've got to cut a deal with him and say, you know what? If you really are innocent, um, you're not going to lie to me. And he goes, you know, from this point on, I won't. So I've got mm. to make this ch this this game put some stakes on it. Then I've got to capture him in another lie, reveal it, and him go, shoot, you caught me. Now what? And then wow. I've got to get him to measure giving up his boss, the bodyguard, or this guy interrogator smarter than me and can put me away forever. I've got to get him to balance that. Then mm. we've got to navigate through when I give him up, how's Eric Maddox going to protect my identity? So I've got to navigate through that. Then I've got to get the locations. You ever tried to map track a prisoner in Iraq? There's no go over this hill. Right, it's like right. flat sand. This is before we'd been there a long time. Sure. So we didn't have this whole thing digitized out. Right. Right. I mean, all these, then I've got to get the locations. Then I've got, got to talk to commander. And Bam Bam says, I want all five. Now I've got to get him for a pre for a recon. I mean, it's not like you don't have to recon him. So now I've got to, I mean, all this stuff takes place. This is a busy six hours. You're yeah. going to send that Delta Force team. You're not going to give them an address. Right. You're going to take a prisoner who's not trusted out there. And these guys, these American soldiers have to dress up in Arab garb, low vis, right? All that's got to take place. Hmm. Like, wow. You're getting exhausted just thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah. Right? It's like That's a full-on operation. That's a full day. Yeah. And there are no other sources <clears throat> of intelligence. There are no cell phones. We're not tracking cell phones. There's not high-level imagery, right? There, we're not collabor collaborating information, intel. It's a single-source prisoner intelligence to drive an operation. And what year was this? 2003. 2003. Yes. <clears throat> wow. Yep. So six safe houses. You thought, five. Oh, I'm sorry, five. You thought the bodyguard was going to be at least one of them. Mm -hmm. Peanuts, empty. 
Squirrels. Ah, uh, there weren't squirrels. There were people. Okay. Just not people, not the person we were looking for. So the, the saga continues. He brings them all back to me. Wow. The team does. How many people? Uh, 40. From all five safe houses? Yes. 40. Wow. And before you, I think, I know you said six hours to gather the intel. Was this from gathering the intel to, to, to hitting these targets within the same 20, 36 hours? 36 hours. Yeah. So this is, these are, I mean, and this is a testament to the special operations community. I mean, including yourself to gather this intel, plan the raid, close target reconnaissance if they're going to do it, hit the house and come off and, and pull that all off. That's not exactly the, it's just an attestim, a testament to the, the community. It's awesome. Yeah. But it's also to understand, to put it in perspective, you're less than three kilometers from any target. Sure. I yeah. mean, you're, you, you're right there. Right. So this is boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and this is what these guys do. They they kick in doors and they 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 take down objectives really well, really fast. I've seen it so, firsthand, sir. So you five five you, uh, five safe houses or five houses, you pull off forty people off the, the these objecti- uh-huh. objectives. They brought them back to us to me. I interrogated them and quickly I could get them to go. Yep, running a safe house. Eric, he left. You guys are close. You scared him to this town of Samara. Another prisoner says, yes, in Samara, he has a senior commander, and I'll take you to the house. Wow. So I went to Bam Bam, and I was like, hey, five good houses. Good job. We actually pushed him to this house, and I said, I'll promise he'll be there. <sighs> Don't ever promise. But <laughs> it's the, I get it. So he was scared off prior to these raids. I mean, he kind of knew, felt, hey, the Americans are on to me, and he just kept. I mean, we're, we're, we're walking right. up the chain. Right. We right. just got his driver. He probably goes, shoot, they got my driver. Yeah. I'm not staying at these safe houses. Right. Let me go to Samara. Mm. And then one of the prisoners said, his head guy in Samara is this person that lives at this house. Wow. We go to that house the next night. Did you get, and you know, all these 40 uh prisoners off the objective they're not talking to each other obviously so are you playing kind of double source like person a said this i'm going to tell person c get that intel is it is it it's like a chess match here so it is it's a lot of that but well so what it is over the five months i've got a small team uh at that time it was seven prisoners that are fully on board got it and i have them in the waiting room if i need to you know what they call jerry springer Huh. And bring one of them out to reveal and talk to a prisoner. I can. Oh wow! My driver was the go-to guy. The driver would come out. Be oh. like, let me talk to him. Wow! I mean, and they would. They'd wow! Be like, what you're with them, right? Oh my goodness! So it was anything I can do to help influence them to gain cooperation, and I had to do it fast. Wow. Okay. So just keep going down this path. We got intel the bodyguard's going to be in Samara at this house. Raid the house. And how long after that raid was the raid on the five? 24 hours. 24 hours later. One night later. Right? Wow. Raid the house. Nada. Jeez. But the younger brother of the sub-commander in Samara was at the house. So the bodyguard wasn't. The bodyguard was supposed to be at his sub-commander's house (coughs) in Samara. But the younger brother of that, of that sub-commander was at that house. Wow. It was the right house. And we got a younger brother. Younger brother on the target is like, hey, I'm not getting arrested. I'm getting married this weekend. You cannot arrest me. Wow. I'll take you. He's like, Muhammad Ibrahim, I 
actually rented a house one block from where you captured me. He's there right now. Mohammed Ibrahim I'm, is the bodyguard. It's the bodyguard. That's our okay. guy. So we're after Mohammed Ibrahim. He's we the bodyguard. Immediately flex target to the right, right then and there. Right then and there to the bodyguard. Uh, rental house. Wow. Bodyguard was not there. Jeez. But his twenty-year-old son was. Huh. So at this point, <laughs> bam, bam, brings me back the boy. He's like, Eric, we're we're tapped. I talked to the boy. He says, my dad was here two hours before you captured me. The boy says his dad, the bodyguard, the one we're looking for, was at the house we raided two hours before we got there. Jeez. And Bam Bam said, do you have anything? And I'm like, he was there. I, We just missed him. Bam Bam says, well, your flight, you're leaving to Crete. Your tour's up. You're going back to Baghdad the day after tomorrow. To redeploy. To come redeploy. Home. Tour's up. Wow. Nobody thinks Saddam's in Tikrit. I mean, nobody. Six weeks into my de- this deployment. So this is a six-month deployment for me. Six weeks into it, the one CIA guy that's living with this team gets shot. Right? Shot in the stomach. He had to medevac to Germany. David, they didn't replace him. They had 50 case officers in country. And they couldn't give one replacement to the town of Tikrit, Saddam's hometown, because they didn't think anybody was there. Like he fled, fled. Like he left Tikrit. You're saying nobody thought Saddam was in his he, Why would he stay there? Why he, would he, anybody stay there? It was this little bitty right. town. You could hide in the millions of Baghdad. You could go to Syria. Why do you think they did stay there? They felt safe. They had people to hide the cover for them. When you say they, who do you mean? Well, Saddam. And if you thought nobody was there, I mean, why so the people I, that so, did so stay? I don't know if you remember, but in 2003... The whole focus was on that deck of cards. Right. Right? If you weren't on that deck of cards, you were a nobody. Hmm. There was not one bodyguard on that deck of cards. There was not one individual on my link diagram on that deck of cards. That deck of cards was regime officials. Correct. My entire link diagram was bodyguards, friends, family, relatives. Not a single person on the deck of cards. So I'd spent five months, and they're like, Eric, you all haven't found a single person on the deck of cards. We don't think Saddam's here. You haven't found anybody. He's not here. So as my tour's running out for me to go, I think he's here. They're like, yeah, man, we got you. You're fired up, man. You're doing All a right. good job. I'm on the edge of my seat. So you, you after the five, you, you hit the house where I think he's going to be in Samara. You catch his kid, the bodyguard's kid? No, we caught the sub-commander's oh, the little sub- brother. I'm sorry, the sub-commander's little brother. He flex target. To the rental house of That's the bodyguard. Right. My apologies. Where we caught the son of the bodyguard. Wow. Okay. And then what happened next? So I've got one night, right? I'm Because you're going home. I'm, I'm, well, I'm going back to Baghdad and then redeploying. Okay. So started talking to the son of the bodyguard. Son of the bodyguard. And he says, Eric, he was my dad was here two hours ago. He left. How would I know? Right? But we connect. I mean, David. This is all about connection. This turned into a full-blown connection. Like this 20-year-old boy was laying on the couch, crying, telling me about how his dad doesn't respect him as a man. Like it's it's like a counseling session. And he starts talking. He goes, yeah, my dad doesn't respect me as a man. He goes, I wish we could do some of the things we used to do when I was a kid. I was like, yeah, what you guys used to do? He goes, well, we used to go fishing. So he doesn't take me fishing anymore. 
I'm like, your dad's in the middle of a war. You might want to cut him some slack. Uh. And the boy said, no, they still go fishing. He just doesn't take me. And I, and at that point, I remembered one of the early interrogations that we did. We captured Saddam Hussein's cook. Guy cooked every meal for Saddam Hussein for eight straight years. And the cook, he's a cook. He's wide open. He did not care. He said, listen, Saddam really just loves this one dish. It's called Mazgouf. It's a fish dish. Chef said, I make the best Mazgouf in the world. I'm Saddam Hussein's cook. And the boy said, yeah, they still go fishing. I said, where do they go fishing? He said, along the Tigris River. I said, but where? And the boy said, Eric, they just built this fish pond next to the river. They fish next to the pond. Wow. And I'm like, why would you build a fish pond during the middle of a war unless you need to have the pond stocked because you couldn't go to the market and get fish for some. So I went and told Bam Bam. I'm like, they built a fish pond. I'm telling you, I promise they'll be there. <laughs> and he's like, he, he's, I've been hearing this for six months, Eric. I know. <laughs> well, I wasn't promising till the yeah, end. Right. And he said, it's our last night. He goes, if you want to hit a fish pond, he needs to be there. And I said, Bam Bam, I'm telling you, I promise he'll be there. So that night, Bam Bam uh, and the team raided the fish pond because they had built a shack next to the pond, little, probably about the size of this, right? Go in, Bam Bam's like, we got two guys. 20 minutes later, he's like, it's nothing. He said, Eric, it's not the bodyguard. It's not Saddam. It's two fishermen. He said, your helicopter's coming in. He goes, bring all the prisoners that were living with us in the house. He goes, get all the prisoners down the helo pad. They pulled, they, they, Flew in a Chinook helicopter. Bam Bam brought me the two fishermen. And he said, you're going back to Baghdad. He said, you won't leave for a couple of days. Don't quit. He goes, take all these prisoners. Get the oh, next wow. target. Wow. So I go to Baghdad. I see all the soldiers, the bearded soldiers I hadn't seen in five and a half months. And they said, all right, your flight's leaving in three days. So I brought in the fishermen, started to interrogate them. Went back and forth, and one of the fishermen broke. Took me 11 and a half hours. Wow. 11 hours, fisherman breaks and says, Eric, I'm the distant cousin of Muhammad Ibrahim, the bodyguard. Wow. He said, I catch fish out of the river. I put it in the pond. I said, where did he go? He said, a couple of days ago, he came, and he got our address of our mutual aunt and uncle in Baghdad. He said, I think they're at that house in Baghdad. So I got the location called the Bam Bam of Baghdad. Mm-hmm. said, I need you to do this raid. He's like, yeah, whatever. Put it on the list. I'll put it on the list. Put it on the We'll get to it. I said, what does that mean? He said, Eric, Saddam's not in Tikrit. And he wasn't in Tikrit. He sure didn't come from Tikrit to go to Baghdad. I'll put it on the list. That's wow. all I heard. I'm told my flight leaves in three days. Days come and went. Leaving the country December 13, 2003 at 8 o'clock in the morning. At 1 o'clock in the morning, the Bam Bam of Baghdad. Calls back to the prison, like, we had a slow night. We did your raid. Nothing. Wasn't the bodyguard. Wasn't Saddam. We can bring you in the prisoners. Said, yeah, bring them in. Brought in the prisoners. Brought me the guy they said owned the house in Baghdad. Sat him down. Started talking to him. Connected with him. Realized this guy is not from Baghdad. Interesting. Guy's from Tikrit. Guy's in the link diagram. He's the deputy. Of my bodyguard. Like my whole link diagram, he's the number two guy. And you got you had his place right there. You knew I mean, he, he, he existed. He his name was Muhammad also. He was the other Muhammad. He was the Muhammad deputy of Muhammad Ibrahim, the bodyguard. Right. 
So you got the number two in charge of uh, right under the bodyguard. I, should I say. mean, he's right there, and I'm like, this is not coincidental. Wow. Right. So I told him, I said, I need you to take me to him. Right. In my mind, I'm thinking. And you have how many days left in country? Hours? How many? I have four hours. Four hours left on a six-month tour. Six-month tour. The past six months of your life was dedicated to getting hundreds of people to trust you, gathering all this intelligence to go after the bodyguard who knows where Saddam Hussein is. You got four hours left and you find the guy right under the bodyguard. That's correct. Wow. Okay, go on. I'm on the edge of my chair. So I told him, I'm like, where is he? Right? You got to take me. You got to take me now. And the deputy, the guy underneath the bodyguard's like, Eric, when y'all came and captured me last night at that house, he said, the bodyguard was in the bed next to me. Oh. No. They don't miss people. Yeah, that's, yeah. So I'm like, did they get him and they didn't know it? Oh. So I'm like, this is del- This is the Baghdad team. Th- they don't know what they're looking for. Maybe oh. Muhammad, you know, like maybe they got him. So I told the guards, I said, bring me any prisoner from any raids last night. And they brought him in. There's four prisoners sitting on the ground, hoods over their head, handcuffs behind their back. We did not have a picture of Muhammad Ibrahim, but I knew exactly who he was supposed to look like. My bodyguard was supposed to have a chin like John Travolta. Yeah. Right? Start lifting up hoods. Last hood, lifted it up. Before I even got the hood off, I saw the chin. And I'm like, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's Muhammad Ibrahim. That's what I said to him. I just said, hey, Muhammad, nice to meet you. No. You know I, I was shocked, right? And I was like, you're Muhammad Ibrahim. Man, I've been waiting to meet you. And he looks at me in perfect English. He goes, you're the interrogator in Tikrit. He said, I've been waiting to meet you too. Damn. Right? Now, I've got two and a half hours. Brought him in, sat him down, and told myself, you got to connect with him. got to give him, you know, don't don't overthink it. Don't rush it. Just listen to him. Just listen. Took off his lid, and I said, the only thing we could talk about is the exact location of Saddam. Right, I didn't know what he was going to say, but I knew wherever he wherever he started would tell me where to go. Hmm. He said, "You give me too much credit." He said, "The president, I don't know where he is," and I knew, I knew immediately. You knew he was lying. No, I didn't oh. care. Everybody lies. Like, <laughs> I don't. This isn't a lie detector. So, right? what did you know when you say I knew? What when you what did you know? That that, that his perception. His whole world was, why me? You give me too much credit. He was not on the deck of cards. Saddam had hundreds of bodyguards. He had 30 inner circle bodyguards. Why did he pick this guy, right? And he goes, you give me too much credit. And I just very clearly, I said, I I didn't give you any credit. I said, I I didn't know who you were before I came to this country. I said, but the 300 prisoners I've interrogated, the 40 of your family members that I have in this prison right now, They give you credit. I said, they give you credit for ruining their lives. Wow. And he kind of rolls his eyes. It's a punch in the gut. He wasn't rolling his eyes at me. He was rolling his eyes at Saddam. Right? Like, if you knew Muhammad Ibrahim, which I didn't know him personally, but I knew exactly who he was, Saddam had 30 inner circle bodyguards. He could have picked anybody. Why did he pick this guy? All of Saddam's bodyguards, they they were not smart. 
but they used the power of being Saddam's bodyguards against the local populace to their own personal advantage, sure. except Mohammed Ibrahim. He was the nicest, fun-loving, whiskey-drinking domino player. Think of what Saddam Hussein did. Saddam Hussein saw this deck of cards as, as, as beacons to him. So he makes everybody on the deck of cards leave his hometown. Hmm. He also knew that all the locals oh. hated the bodyguards. He made all them go away, except for Muhammad Ibrahim. He said, this one guy can know where I am, but nobody's going to turn in this guy. He doesn't have any enemies. Everybody loves him. They won't turn him into the Americans. That was Saddam's strategy. The civilians in the town would not turn that one bodyguard over, would not kind of flip on him because he was loved by the people. That's right. Wow. And then that's why he rolled his eyes when you said, I got 40 people in here that says you're the man. No, who give you credit, give you credit. for ruining their lives. Wow. See, I don't need to make this about can you do it. I need to make this about look what's happening to you. It's the thing about interrogations. You can't make it about what they should do for you, what they need to do for you. It's got to be about them. Did he know where Saddam was? Well, I didn't know. So what happened then? So you leave? You got hours no, left? No, 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 no. So, so as my clock's ticking out, like we're going back and forth. And like my my final thing, he had a daughter, uh, had a, a baby that his wife was hiding in Crete. And I said, your wife and the baby have been living here. And he was shocked. I didn't know it. I said, I never went to that house. I would never send the soldiers to that house. I would never hurt that baby. I said, where else are you going to go to find someone than their spouse? I said, mm. what will he do for you now? What will he do for your baby? And I've got him crying, right? Like he's really broke down. And the she time's running rough. out. The interrogator's like, dude, you got to go catch a plane. Huh. So I'm, I take him to his cell. I'm like, I need it. I need it now. And he's like, I don't know if I should do it. Like, he didn't say he couldn't do it. He said, I don't know if I should do it. I'm like, I really think you should. And should mean tell you where Saddam is. Yes. Okay. And he said, I can't. I said, all right, I'm leaving. I'm not joking. This is not a joke. He spent six months. You finally got the guy. You have an hour left before your flight leaves. It's literally down to the hour. And this guy's, I don't know if I should. That's insane. Insane. Yeah. All right, so go on. Sorry. I do so I told him, I said, you're going to be in here. You're going to change your mind. I said, I know how this story ends. I said, I'm not kidding. I ran out of time. I said, I I'm going to be gone. When you change your mind and you're going to take us to Saddam, I will be gone. I said, nobody here thinks you can do it. When you do it, you got to go crazy. I said, make them come talk to you. Yell, scream, make them come talk to you. No one's ever going to talk to you again. You're going to die in here, an old man. Wow. So I left, right? I put him in the cell. I left. I, had, I didn't even pack my bags, pack my bags. And senior interrogator comes pick me up, driving to the tarmac, right? And when Jake, you're right next to the, the plane. They're driving across the tarmac. Senior interrogator says, what'd you do to the prisoner? I'm like. Why? Nothing. Why? He goes, guards are freaking out. They think he's trying to kill himself. They wow. said he can't stop getting from banging his head against the wall of his cell. Wow. And I'm like, he's trying to do it. Jumped out of the truck, ran across, went to the prison, got Muhammad Ibrahim out, took off his head, said, where is he? He looks at me and he said, we got to go. We got to go right now. I said, don't mess with me, man. Where are we going? He said, we're going back to Tikrit. He said he's in this village called Adwar at the farmhouse of a man named Kais Namik Jassim. And I'm like, show me. He start, He drew a beautiful sketch. Got the map. And he goes, Eric, we got to go. Interrogators are back. I said, that guy just broke. They said, go get on the plane. I said, 
you don't understand. Saddam Hussein's into Crete. And they said, you don't understand. We know he's not to Crete. Go get on the plane. And I'm like, please call Bam Bam. Tell him Muhammad Ibrahim is dying to take him to Saddam. I wow. gave him the sketch, the wow. map. They put me on the truck. They flew me to, they took me to that flight and I left. Oh. I left the country. And David, when you're with JSOC, you don't go home. They fly you to Doha. The next morning, I had to give a top secret out briefing of my entire tour. Hmm. I've got my link diagram, wow. show up to the building. They knocked on the door. Senior officer opens up and he said, All briefings this morning are canceled. Clunk. And the sergeant knocked on the door and he said, Staff Sergeant Maddox can't leave the country till he gives his briefing. And the senior officer pulled me inside and he said, You're Eric Maddox? I said, Yes. He said, Eric, we got him. Wow. We got him last night. He said, Your prisoner did it. And I said, The bodyguard did it. How'd it go down? And he said, Well, when you left, we called Bam Bam. Bam Bam and the team, the whole team jumped on a helicopter, picked up Muhammad Ibrahim, the bodyguard, went to Tikrit, planned, executed the raid of the farmhouse, and he took them straight to the hole. And Muhammad Ibrahim was on target when the raid happened. Bam Bam, and, yes. Bam Bam and the team raids, right? Right. The United States Army said, hey, we've been to every house in Tikrit. We've been to this farm twice. They couldn't find Saddam. They go to the bodyguard. Pull him out of the truck, tough, caught off his handcuffs, take off his hood, said, where is he? The bodyguard walks him around to the backside of the house. It's just sand and dirt, and he kicks it up with his heels, and there's a there, there's a rope. They realize he's kicking up a rope. They moved him aside. They dug it up. Rope's connected to a lid. Wow. They look at the bodyguard, and he's not saying anything. He's just going, all right. Wow. So they're drawn, lift up the lid, and there he was. We all know what happened to Saddam. What happened to Muhammad Ibrahim after that? Did he continue to cooperate? How would you guys treat him after that? So Muhammad Ibrahim, I I never promised that he would be released. He was too volatile, right? But all those 40 family members released the next week. Really? He eventually, he was there for three years. He got released. He went and got a gazillion dollars of Saddam's in Syria. Saddam had over $3 billion in cash stored in Aleppo, Syria, just before the the invasion of 2003 war. You know, wow. When I was in Iraq the second time, we captured a guy who said he drove some of that money over the border. No kidding. I digress. Did that, I don't want to say hurt, but did you feel you missed out because you spent six months? Uh, That's a lot of energy. That's a lot of time. That that's an emotional commitment, and then you weren't there when because your tour ended. Did you feel you kind of missed out because you didn't? <laughs> you weren't there on target when they got Saddam. I, mean, I, I would have probably. I would have. I don't think so. I didn't at the time. I get that question more than any other question. So uh, now I'm like, well, maybe I guess it would have been better for me. When you're dialed in, you know, when you're so in, you just want to get the guy. So for me, it was. I did my job. Bam, bam. He didn't need me at the target. They did their job. And you know what you did. You felt that that pride. There's a sense of pride there. Listen. Not not a, yeah. I don't make any bones about it. Right. People talk a lot of stuff about what we've done and who we've done. I'll tell you exactly what I did. I tracked down Saddam Hussein, right? Wow. I don't need to be on that raid. Wow. 
I don't even know what time it is. I'm just so so caught up in this. This is a great story. So that's how Saddam Hussein got captured. Mm-hmm. Very briefly, what did the next 10, 15 years look for you? Because, I mean, this is now 16, 17 years ago when that happened, and you've had a full career since then and just doing amazing things. So I'm immediately taken straight to the Pentagon, straight to at the end Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld's office, right? Secretary Rumsfeld loved how this went down. He loved the interrogations. And he said, I don't want to have to borrow interrogators who are Chinese Mandarin linguists. He goes, I want my own team of interrogators. Instant, like the next weekend had got received the funding for the Defense Intelligence Agency to have a 30-person civilian interrogation team. And I was hired as the first one. Wow. Pulled out of the Army, became a GS interrogator for the DIA as a civilian interrogator. Over the next 10 years, I ended up doing a total of eight deployments, 2,700 interrogations. And my first year, my first assignment was teach this technique. Teach this empathy-based listening interrogation technique. I'm going to tell you, of interrogations before empathy-based listening technique, using the Army's old techniques, prisoners break at 4%. The 30-person interrogation team, and my, I ended up doing 2,700. They've done 1,000. We break prisoners at 65% wow. using this technique. In 2014, I hit the 20-year mark, 10 military, 10 civilian DIA. I got out of the government and became a keynote speaker and trainer of empathy-based listening to gain influence for sales negotiations. Wow. So wrap this up and kind of tell me a little bit more about this empathy-based. What 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 kind of, what goes into it? I mean, I heard a lot of the stories while you're tracking down Saddam, but outside of maybe a war zone, outside of that specific mission you were on, what's more of this empathy-based approach? So empathy-based listening is the idea that when we talk to people, they're measuring Anybody they have a conversation with, can I trust you of what? Can I trust that you're more interested in me than you are yourself, right? That's what we call the hurdle of trust. The problem is every time we're communicating with somebody, we have psychological distractions. It lowers our listening to 25%. We think about our own agenda, our own goals, our biases towards this individual, right? Everything in our world, and if we can identify those distractions, put them behind us, and then have a single agenda instead of our own goals, a single agenda of seeking to understand their perspective with regards to the topic of conversation at that moment in time, you can catapult your listening deep into the 80s and 90s. Interesting. When you do that, there's no higher way to gain immediate trust in any relationship with a family member, with a colleague, or a prisoner you just yanked off the battlefield. And why? Because it makes the person talking feel welcome, feel invited, feel loved. Let me say it again. When people are in a relationship, the trust is not that you're going to steal my wallet. I'll make sure you are that have that level of integrity. The, the partnership is if we're going to work together, what's more important to you? Your goals or mine? You can't get... You can't put somebody else ahead of yourself unless you can remove everything in your mind to even listen to seek to understand what matters to them. If you can live a life of listening to seeking to understand, then you build just a personal culture, a professional culture that says, here, what we do is figure you out. 
for you. And that's what everyone wants to partner with. Wow, I get it. In conclusion, veterans, you know, that's why I started the show. We're big on the military and veteran community. What can you tell the veteran community to specifically maybe veterans still trying to find their path? What I would, what I would tell veterans is we can't look at like, look at your military past and say, I'm going to make the assumption or I have the belief, this is how I can jump into the private sector. This is where my value is right now. We want to have that personal value. We want to have faith. We want to have that level of integrity. But when I say that transition, which is so difficult, when a veteran comes out and says, how do I jump in? What job can I do? I need you to think about what did you learn? What are your differentiators? What is the secret sauce of what you learned in the military, right? Like anybody could look at me as an interrogator and say, wow, you know what you should do is go train cops, right? Get into security, all that stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. What the military taught me to do was to gather information, to build trust, to maximize influence with people. In the private sector, we're talking sales, leadership, culture building, right? This technique that the army taught me, it's not an army skill set. It was a military background, which taught me a skill set, which can be applied in the private sector. Mm. The other thing that I want veterans to know, and actually people outside who aren't veterans who are like, what do veterans bring to the table? People think, you know what the military's about? It's dress right dress. Wake up at six o'clock or five o'clock in the morning and obey orders. I'm like, no, 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 no. You think there's there's a war runs at five o'clock in the morning for 10? <laughs> I said, it's about understanding how to process information, to make decisions, to solve problems that we did not know we were gonna face. Interesting. Yeah, if absolutely. You, if you talk to people in a battlefield, they'll go, here's how wars work. You show up and everything's a goat rope, nothing what we expected, and we got to figure it out. And you're like, what? And like, that's what it means to be in the military. We're problem solvers. We do. And you have a team of people around you that are problem solvers. That's what we do in the military. Right. We are problem solvers. And you get out and sometimes you don't have that same team anymore. You have to right. go find a new team or develop the trust and relationships with the new team as well. Yes. Which is not easy. But you have that experience that really put your feet to the fire. No, they probably don't want you for your raw, raw, lockdown, military, live or die. But what they do want is that mindset to say, I don't know what the solution is, but we can go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Let's communicate to build a team. That That's the value of what veterans bring to the private sector. Wow, that's amazing. Look, this was so amazing. Please check out his website, ericmaddox.com. Am I correct? M-A-D-D-O-X.com. That's how we got connected. I just saw you online. We started, hit it off, formed a relationship. Thank you so much for flying out here. Thanks, David.